I invite you all to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 11. Our ongoing series is called The King of Kings in the Books of Kings. And this is message number 24 in that series. It's been over a month since our last message in this series, so I don't expect anybody to remember where we are in the story. Let me try to catch you up. Our last message had the very happy title, I Will Avenge the Blood of My Servants. Do you remember that one? I Will Avenge the Blood of My Servants. It was not boring. That was the phrase that we said. It was many things, but it was not boring. In that story told in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 2 Kings, the Lord raised up a Messiah, small m Messiah, an anointed one, named Jehu who brought the justice that the story had been crying for ever since 1 Kings chapter 17. The prophet Elisha, do you remember him? We had Elijah, now we have Elisha. He's still living in the story. Elisha sent Hatzael to take over the kingdom of Aram from Ben-Hadad in Syria. And he sent Jehu, who drives like a madman, he sent Jehu on a mission to take over the northern kingdom of Israel destroying the house of Ahab by killing Joram and Jezebel and avenging the blood of all God's servants who Ahab and Jezebel had killed. Does it sound familiar now? Kind of coming back to you? Or should I just preach that one again? Jehu obeyed. He took the mission that that Elisha gave him. He drove his chariot like a madman. And in one day he killed not just the king of Israel, but also Ahaziah, the king of Judah, because they were together that day in the valley of Jezreel. And he killed more people too. In fact, I think he got a little carried away. He killed Jezebel, as ordered, and he killed Ahab's family, and then he killed relatives of Ahaziah, and then all the priests of Baal. In one fell swoop, Jehu changed the political and spiritual landscape of both kingdoms. Now, in the next two chapters, the ones we're going to look at today, 2 Kings 11 and 12, the spotlight swings to the south, to the southern kingdom of Judah. We'll return back to the north in due course, but the focus, the question for today's two chapters is what will happen now to the southern kingdom, now that their king has been killed? We know, who Je- we know Jehu has taken control in the north. What's going to happen in the power vacuum of the south? Because there are some promises of God that are on the line. Remember that God has made some big promises to King David about how he will always have a descendant who will carry the promises of the kingdom. Remember those promises? We call them the, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. Even when the kingdom split in two back in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, the Lord promised again about Solomon, I will give one tribe to Solomon's son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. But now, it's all in jeopardy. Now, the Davidic king has been killed by Jehu. Will David's line continue? Or be cut off? It's a big question. 
If you follow along in the parallel books of First and Second Chronicles, I haven't been, we haven't been preaching First and Second Chronicles. Maybe someday we'll, we'll do those too, but they kind of track along alongside First and Second Kings with a different perspective. If you've been reading Second Chronicles together with First and Second Kings, you'll find out that Ahaziah didn't have very many Davidic family members. His dad, King Jehoram, had been eliminating potential rivals. So Ahaziah didn't have any uncles left to follow him as king when he died. And like I said, Jehu had killed a bunch more of Ahaziah's family. There aren't many Davidites left. Ahaziah has several sons and at least one newborn, like Brigan or Troy. A newborn son, Ahaziah, had a newborn in the palace in Jerusalem while he was away in Jezreel. And this boy could become king one day. But he has an enemy. And his enemy is no less than his gram. His grandmother is his enemy. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, son that, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. Would you pray with me? Then we'll see what happens in this very scary story. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a lot of details here, a lot of names and places, and it's hard to get our, wrap our minds back around that. I pray that you would get us, to kind of parachute us, Lord, right down into the middle of this story, get our bearings, and then see what you're up to. Because you're in this story. Your name gets mentioned. You, you don't say much, but you're always at work. You're always doing something. And Lord, help us to get a, a, a picture of what that is and then how that affects our lives today because you're still up to something even when we can't see it. So Lord, we pray that we would get it this morning. Get us into your word and get your word into us that we might be changed. We pray it in the name of Jesus who was crucified for us. In his name we pray. Amen. So your grandma might have said to you at some point, I'm going to kill you. But she was just joking. Athaliah was not joking. Athaliah was probably, it's a little unclear, but Athaliah was probably Jezebel's daughter. Okay? So if your mom is Jezebel and you grow up in that household, you learn certain ways of how we do things. Right? And they aren't good. She acted like Jezebel's daughter. She was from the north, from the, Israel, the kingdom of Israel. She was in the line somehow of Omri. But she had married into the royal family of the south, into Judah. We saw this back in uh, 1 Kings, and I said, eventually that will catch up to them, where the, the, the northern new kings are marrying into the southern kings. Well, it's caught up to them now. She had married the old Davidic king, and she was the mother of the dead Davidic king. But she hated the rightful Davidic king. She wanted all of the power of the kingdom to herself. And when her son was killed, she saw her chance. She saw her opportunity and started having everyone else in her way eliminated as well. All of the royal princes who were next in line for the throne. Verse 1 says, she proceeded to destroy the whole 
royal family. You remember the stump? Remember the stump from that we learned about last month in Advent season? Wait, last year in Advent season? Well, this is a stump moment. The whole line of David is about to be cut off. And what does that do to the promises? Look at verse 2. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Jehoram and sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah, so he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. God has a plan, doesn't He? And He's got a person on the spot to enact that plan. This lady, Jehoshaphat, is one of the unsung heroes of the Old Testament. You know, we should be naming our daughters after her. Sweetie, we should have named Robin Jehoshaphat. Hey, Jimmy, if it's a girl, Jehoshaphat. What do you think? See if you can get that past my back. While everyone else was running for their lives, Jehoshaphat ran for Joash, her tiny little nephew. Can you imagine the panic of that day? The fear as this is going down? Jehoshaphat finds a tiny little room, stash him away in the temple complex with his nurse. And we never hear from her again. It is possible that Jehoshaphat died that day, saving little Joash and saving the kingdom and protecting the promises made by God. Now, I want you to think about the next six years for just a second. Don't look at the next verse. Think about those six years. Because for six years, Athaliah ruled the land. Heather and I were talking about it yesterday. Whenever she sees Athaliah, she thinks Attila. Okay? She was an Attila. It looked like she had won. It felt like she'd won, right? For all intents and purposes, she had won. Everybody knew that her reign was illegitimate. It was a sham. But nobody knew that the rightful king was still alive. Almost nobody. There were probably hints and whispers and secrets about it probably people say i think i think there's still somebody i think they're what do you think but the common man in judah said it's a stump god's promises are dead because all of david's sons are dead god's promises have failed six years do you feel that Six years, they thought the promises were dead? Do you feel sometimes like God's promises are dead to you? If not dead, then duds. Yeah, these promises are duds. They're just not going off. They're not working. I I can't see this coming together. Six whole years. And then the big reveal. Verse 4. In the seventh year, Jehoiada, the high priest who's actually Jehoshaphat's husband, sent for the commanders of units of a hundred, the Karaites and the guards, and had them brought to him at the temple of the Lord. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath at the temple of the Lord. Then he showed them the king's 
son. Hey, guys, come here. Look what's here. You're never going to believe this. It's the king's son. He commanded them, saying, this is what you are to do. You who are in the three companies that are going on duty on the Sabbath, a third of you guarding the royal palace, a third at the surrogate, and a third at the gate behind the guard who take turns guarding the temple, and you who are in the other two companies that normally go off Sabbath duty and are all to guard the temple for the king. Station yourselves around the king, each man with his weapon in his hand. Anyone who approaches your ranks must be put to death. Stay close to the king wherever he goes. You're the secret service, guys. Guard this boy with your life. You know who he is? He's the incarnation of all the promises of God. It's a son of David, boys. Let's guard him with our lives. The commanders of units of a hundred did just as Jehoiada the priest ordered. Each one took his men, those who were going on duty on the Sabbath and those who were going off duty, and came to Jehoiada the priest. And he began to hand out the weapons. You see the scene, don't you? Guard him with your life. Guard him with your life. Guard him with your life. Then he gave the commanders the spears and shields that had belonged to who? King David. And that were in the temple of the Lord. It's time to break out the David stuff, boys. The guards, each with his weapon in his hand, stationed themselves around the king near the altar in the temple from the south side to the north side of the temple. Jehoiada brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. They anointed him, and the people clapped their hands and shouted, Long live the king. That's our sermon title for today. Long live the king! Six years! Six years of Athaliah's wicked rule. And now it comes out, the king has been alive the whole time. Long live the king. Everybody is so happy. They realize that the promises are still alive. Because David's son is still alive. Long live the king. Everybody's happy except Athaliah. Verse 13. When Athaliah heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked and there was the king standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king and all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her robes and called out, Treason! Treason! It's hard to believe she could say that with a straight face. She was the one who was treasonous. She knew exactly what was going on. She knew exactly who that was. Verse 15. Jehoiada the priest ordered the commanders of units of a hundred who were in charge of the troops, bring her out between the ranks and put to the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest had said she must not be put to death in the temple of the Lord. So they seized her as she reached the place where the horses entered the palace grounds, and there she was put to death. Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and people that they would be the Lord's people. He also made a covenant between the king and the people, and they started living it out. All the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. There was a temple of Baal in Jerusalem. Not just up in Samaria, but it had infected Jerusalem. They tore it down. They smashed the altars and idols to pieces and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Then Jehoiada, the priest, posted guards at the temple of the Lord. He took with him the commanders of hundreds, the Kerites, the guards, and all the people of the land. And together they brought the king down from the temple of the Lord and went into the palace, entering by way of the gates of the guards. The king then took his place on the royal throne. And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet. 
because Athaliah had been slain with the sword at the palace. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. Long live the king. Now there are a lot of things that we could point out about this story that are really interesting. One of them is that when Joash was crowned, he was also given his own copy of the covenant or the testimony. When I think of Don and uh, Smeal and the Gideons that we have here today, I think how important it is for each of us to have our own personal copy of the Scriptures. Here in America, we have so many personal copies. I don't know how many copies of the Scriptures I have, especially if you include the digital ones. But they didn't all have their own back then. The king definitely got one. In fact, he was supposed to write it out himself, handwritten, to refer to again and again because he had one job and it was to enforce what was in it. It should have been his delight. There are a lot of things that, are, that we can point to that are interesting here in this story, but what I really want us to feel is this one lesson about who God is. And I hope it's awfully familiar to you. How many times have I said that? God always keeps His promises. It's like the theme of the Old Testament, right? How many times as we've trekked through Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, now 2nd Kings, have we said, God always keeps His promises. Probably not enough times. Because we often need reminded, right? Because we often live in those six years when it doesn't seem like the promises are working. I mean, we just go from one verse to another about the six years, and the, whoosh, the six years are gone. Well, that was thousands of years ago. But when you're going through your six years now, you feel it. Are you living in an Athaliah period right now in your own life? It just doesn't seem like the whole thing is working. Where is God? Where are His promises? Well, they are right here all along. The king is still alive even when it doesn't seem like it. The rightful king was in the temple the whole time. God was still keeping His promises, and He always will. You need to hear that this morning? One week into 2017, long live the king. God always keeps His promises. Let me give you a challenge today. Here's some homework for you. What promise of God will you begin to cling to in a greater way in 2017? What promise of God will you begin to cling to in a greater way in 2017? What has God promised us as His people that you can personally take to heart and cling to in a new and fresh way for this year that is opening in front of us? Just think about that for a second. Think about what you're facing right now this year. And think about what promise, if you believe it, could make a big difference in how your year goes. I was visiting with one of you this week and you said, I feel alone, but I know I'm not alone. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I am with you even to the end of the age. Nothing could separate us from the love of God. That's right. What promise do you need to claim and cling to for 2017? Do you know what God has promised? That's the first step. You've got to read your Bible, right, Don? You've got to read your Bible to know what God has promised us. Read your Bible. Say, what has God promised to His people that is true for us today? And then cling to it. Memorize it. 
Put it on a 3 by 5 card or a post-it note and get it in front of you and pray it. And maybe right under it, long live the king. I'll tell you what mine is. It's the same as it was last year. John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's my long live the king verse right now. Does this story remind you of anything? When you're reading it, when you're hearing it, maybe for the first time or, or for this morning just kind of with new fresh ears, does it remind you of any other stories in your Bible? There are a number of times in the Bible when they try to kill the little children to stamp out the promise, aren't there? Moses and the bulrushes, right? That's a famous one. How about Herod and the Magi? This weekend is the traditional time to remember the visit of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. They were looking for the newborn king whose star they had seen in the east. And Herod said, oh, well, I'm told he'll be born in Bethlehem. Let me know if you find him because I want to worship him too. Herod and Athaliah, I think, had a lot in common. Herod had all the little kids in Bethlehem killed to try to stamp out the promise of God. All the sons. A voice was heard in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children. But God was still keeping His promises. He always has a Davidic king. So the Magi and then Joseph outsmarted Herod. They were the Jehosheba and the Jehoiada of the New Testament to later be revealed. King Jesus was spirited away to be a refugee in Egypt and then later was revealed. Long live the king. So we've been doing these books of kings long enough to know that after a king is crowned, the next thing is to answer the big question, right? What's the big question? Thumbs up or thumbs down, right? Was Joe Ash thumbs up or thumbs down? He's got... He's got a a great start here. Does this king do his one job or does he fail to do his one job? In verse 17, at the age of seven, King Joash got off to a good start. They basically rebooted the entire nation. Jehoiada then made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people and they would be the Lord's people. He also made a covenant between the king and the people. In other words, remember who you are. And what you're supposed to do, and then just stick with it, Joash. Stick with it. How did King Joash do? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Chapter 12 tells us that he was at least one thumb up. At least at the start. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king at the ripe old age of seven. And he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. Long live the king. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Hmm. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Well, at least he's one thumb up just because of verse 2. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However, there's a writer on that statement, isn't there? Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. 
As long as Jehoiada was looking over his shoulder, things went pretty well. The Chronicles make it even clearer that after Jehoiada died, things began to go downhill. But at least at first, aside from the high places, which were a long-standing problem, things started out very well. In fact, Joash did something that none of the kings of Judah had done since King Solomon, and that was he took care of the temple. We haven't heard much about the temple for many chapters, have we? Ever since Solomon built it in all of its splendor, we haven't been talking about the temple. Now granted, we've spent most of our time in the north, but there just hasn't been anything about the temple for chapter after chapter. And it's fallen into disrepair. Joash means to fix that. Verse 4. Joash said to the priests, collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. The money collected in the census, the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Let every priest receive the money from one of the treasurers and let it be used to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. So he cares. He cares about the temple. You remember that temple Solomon built in all of its glory? Well, just think, whenever you build something nice like that, then you've got to take care of it, right? And they hadn't been. Things were falling apart. So, so Joash says, let's fix this. Let's take in the offerings. Let's get this done. And when it doesn't start happening, he does something more. Verse 6. But by the 23rd year of King Joash, the priests still had not repaired the temple. Therefore, King Joash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests, lit a fire under them, and asked them, why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasurers, but hand it over for repairing the temple. The priests agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people and that they would not repair the temple themselves. Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid. He placed it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the temple of the Lord, where everybody could see it, total transparency. The priests who guarded the entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought to the temple of the Lord. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of money in the chest, the royal secretary and the high priest came, counted the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord, and put it into bags. When the amount had been determined, they gave the money to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. With it, they paid those who worked on the temple of the Lord, the carpenters and builders, the masons and stonecutters. They purchased timber and dressed stone for the repair of the temple of the Lord and met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. And just the temple. The money brought into the temple was not spent for making silver basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, or any of the other articles of gold or silver for the temple of the Lord. It was paid to the workmen who used it to repair the temple. They did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. And don't worry, the priests were still taken care of. Verse 16, the money from the guilt offerings and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. One big thumb up for Joash. Well done, Joash. Wish we could end there. Because he didn't stick with it. When things got difficult for Joash and when his mentor had died, the thumb turned downward. Look at verse 17. About this time, Hazael, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. Does that name sound familiar? Hazael? This is the other guy whom Elisha had sent to depose Ben-Hadad. Not Jehu, but the other one. He's the new ruler of Aram. And Elisha said that he would be a headache and a threat to the Jewish people. And he was, just like Elisha had predicted. In fact, he's now come to attack Jerusalem. And what does King Joash do in this situation? 
He sends him a bribe. He tries to buy him off. He appeases and placates the aggressor. Look at verse 18. Hazael turned to attack Jerusalem, but Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred objects dedicated by his fathers, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace, and he sent them to Hazael, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. Ah, rats. All that money that he'd been raising for the temple, big chest, hole in it, one thumb up, He now takes out and he sends to his enemy. And it worked. Hazael takes off. He says, all right, I won't attack anymore. But what was the true cost? Is that what Solomon said the king should do if Jerusalem was attacked? Do you remember the dedication of the temple? When Solomon got up and he prayed and he said, this is how it's going to be. What Solomon said that God wanted when Israel was being attacked, when Jerusalem was facing enemies. It was not, send them money. Send them the treasury. No, it was pray to God. And the Lord, Yahweh, will deliver you. God always keeps His promises. Don't try to pay them off. You've got God. You belong to Him. But Joash forgot all of that and bailed. He failed his one job. Here's the lesson I want us to take home with us from this story. It's another reminder. Number two, God always wants our whole hearts. God always wants our whole hearts. He doesn't just want a piece of our hearts. He doesn't want half-hearted obedience. You know what we call half-hearted obedience? Disobedience, right. He wants all of us. He wants our whole hearts. Psalm 86 Verse 11 puts it in, turns it into a prayer. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Or, or the hymn we sing puts it so well. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. See, God wants our whole heart. Here's the question for you as you face 2017. What are the biggest threats to your wholehearted faith and obedience in the coming year? What threatens to take you down in 2017? When I look at Joash, I think that Joash never made his faith his own. When Jehoiada was living, he lived like Jehoiada wanted him to. But when when Jehoiada was gone, there wasn't anything there in Joash. We see this a lot with kids, don't we? They're good, apparently Christian kids until they hit about 18, 19, or 20. And then where did they go? Well, the problem wasn't that they turned 18, 19, or 20. The problem happened before that. It's because you have to make your faith your own or you don't really have faith. And we parents need to pray that they make their faith their own because they can't get to heaven on our faith. God has no grandkids. God is not a grandfather, just a father. And when I look at Joash, I think that Joash never prepared for the hard times. He should have. The way his life started, right? First six years, and what should have been beat into him. These times, these Athaliah times come. Things get hard. But Joash got comfortable. And when Hazael came knocking, he ran in fear to the treasury instead of to faith in the Lord. 
What's the biggest threat to your wholehearted faith in 2017? Don't think there isn't one. What do you need to lay aside or do battle with so that the Lord has your whole heart, your whole attention, your whole you? Identify it today and take action. Don't let it fester. Don't let it wait. The author of 2 Chronicles gives us a lot more of the gory details of where Joash went wrong. It's not here in 2 Kings, but it is there in 2 Chronicles. By the time he died, Joash was two thumbs down. He even had, you're not going to believe this, he had Jehoiada's son Zechariah killed. That might have been the son of Jehoshaphat, his aunt who had been his savior. So he ended very poorly. Verse 19, As for the other events of the reign of Joash and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? His officials conspired against him and assassinated him at Beth Milo on the road down to Silla. The first southern king to be assassinated. The king where they were saying, long live the king, and they were so happy he was born, and now his own officials seek his death. The officials who murdered him were Jehoshaphat, son of Shimeath, and Jehoshaphat, son of Shomer. He died and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. Two things going on there at once, right? One, he dies an ignoble death because he failed to have a whole heart. And God always wants our whole hearts. But did you catch who the king was after him? It was Amaziah. Amaziah, his son, there still remains a son of David on the throne. God is still keeping his promises. We've learned again and again, when these kings are at their best, they remind us of Jesus. Like Jesus being saved and rescued by the Magi and by Joseph. But we've also learned that when these kings are not at their best, they remind us why we need Jesus. We need a son of David who does not die, or at least who comes back from the dead. We need a son of David who has a whole heart of faith and never fails to do his one job because we have failed and we will continue to fail. We need a perfect king to take our place and pay for our sins on the cross in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. King Joash reminds us, that we need King Jesus. That baby who was hunted by Herod, he grew up and lived a perfect life, taught about the kingdom of God, and then died on the cross to pay for our sins. But he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected on the third day, and now he lives forever with his saints to reign. Long live the King.